Hello and welcome to the That's Afterlife podcast with DM Esther Anson and Adrian Mills. Well, AD, what an amazing galaxy of stars we were able to talk to. Do you know something? Um, I know lockdown has been very, very difficult and problematic for a lot of people, but the greatest fun I've had has been doing this podcast. And I'd like to think that everyone that's been uh, listening to it has enjoyed it as much as we have. Yes, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Sometimes one does get a feeling watching television shows that the participants are having great fun. But actually, that was always a problem with That's Life. You know, looking back, this is called That's Afterlife. People used to say to me, you obviously enjoy it so much. And I always wonder whether there's an implication, i.e. more than the viewer at home. But I don't think so. I think it was infectious. I like to think it was infectious. And as you have always said to me, you know, surround the programme with lots of, um, you know, talented pets and, uh, you know, people playing the national anthem on their teeth or whatever they happen to do. But at the core of the programme, you've got this fantastic, solid story, great journalism that actually people will talk about at the water cooler the following day. Bring back the water cooler, I say. We're all going to our own kitchen sink now, aren't we? And nobody's working in the office at the moment as I speak to you. But I think also that the interviews we've done for the podcast, all our stars have had a cause that they've really cared about. And that's been the reason that they came on. I thought Natalie Dormer was fantastic on her podcast because I have to hand on heart, I didn't know a lot about it apart from what I saw on television and she's a very private person. Hi, Esther. How are you, Natalie? I'm all better for seeing you, my love. It's been a while. Indeed, indeed. And you have been extremely busy and one might say productive. <laughs> yeah, so it's the perfect thing to do during a pandemic is get pregnant with <laughs> a baby. Um, I feel like I'm probably being a bit of a cliche. She'll probably be sitting in a bar in sort of 30 years time on a date going, yeah, I'm a COVID baby. I think there's going to be lots of COVID babies because what else could people do? Maybe like Blitz babies. Well, that's amazing. And how old is she? Uh, she's 12 weeks. She's, wow. yes, yeah, she's just three months. So she's an absolute joy. Um, I'm never going to complain about shooting hours ever again because the sleep deprivation is something else oh, but I know that you can give me plenty of tips I know you've been through it well all I can tell you is that I used to stagger to a mirror in the morning after yet another sleepless night and peer at new wrinkles which had emerged under my eyes it's until it happens to you I don't think you quite realize how tiring it is no, I don't think you do. Um, I completely underestimated it. <laughs> I completely underestimated it. And also, I have to say, you hear people say, oh, your whole perspective on life will change and your whole set of value systems will alter. And you sort of roll your eyes as a childless person and go, yeah, yeah, you don't know the true meaning of life until you've had a baby. And then you have one and you go, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> it really does completely alter the lens and things that did matter oh so much just there's a whole new perspective to life isn't there I'm in love I'm absolutely in love she's a joy and it's it's a steep learning curve and sleep has always been very valuable to me but that's the only down and you know nature's so clever the hormones kick in so yeah. you don't but you don't it's you don't begrudge it so nature's very clever I think she's a very special person 
And I suspect over the next few years, you're going to, I mean, how big can you get beyond Game of Thrones and uh, the Hunger Games? But this is an actress who's going to grow in stature over many years. But uh, now talking of fame, um, how are your dance feet, Esther? Well, I don't like to say this because I love Anton Dubet madly. <laughs> but I think in my life, now nobody else has ever said this publicly, so maybe I'm the only person in the entire universe to feel this, but strictly traumatised me. It was such a terrifying experience that I don't think I have danced a step with anyone anywhere since I kicked Anton Dubeck on the knee, as he always said. He always said he was never worried about me treading on his toes because my feet were so long, I would end up kicking his knee. <laughs> Do you know what I think traumatised Anton Dubeck? What? Your timekeeping. Why? Let's have a listen. I'm going to tell you a little story about Esther Ranson. Oh, I'm, please, right. About the busiest woman in the world. We got together and I came into your living room and, and there you were sort of lounging on a chaise lounge in some sort of, I thought you were in a, something sort of with a bespoke sort of taffeta thing with a, and a little bit of ostrich feather. And, <laughs> and I walked in like this and the camera crew were all there. Yeah. I went, ah, oh, and I went, oh, excellent. Right, brilliant. You, I'm delighted. Anyway, and we had a bit of a hug and all that. So in the old days, like you were allowed to touch people. So we had a little hug and all that sort of stuff. Lovely jubbly. Anyway, you went away. And we were supposed to start rehearsing the following day. I, I said, OK, so you're about 10 o'clock and we'll be there till about six. You went, oh, no, I can't do it. I've got lunch. I can do, <laughs> I can do, I can do, I can do nine <laughs> until 9.45. And then I could probably do three till four. But that's, I'm not really sure. I went, oh, OK, fair enough. The whole week was like, I went, what about Wednesday? You went, oh, Wednesday's very clear. I've only got a meeting in the morning and then an afternoon meeting as well. So I could probably do, I don't know, 8.30 to 9. Is that any good to you? I went, probably not really. It should take me four hours to get to you. So fine, OK. Anyway, this, the first time we ever met was when I burst into your drawing room. The second time we ever met was at the <laughs> photo shoot a week later. And then done a scrap of training. Was this the moment, Anton, that you realised that this was the year you weren't going to win Strictly Come Dancing? <laughs> well, the first year, of course, I came third from top. The second year with Esther, I came third from bottom. <laughs> the wonderful, tolerant Anton Dubeck. <laughs> I mean, he has survived longer than any other professional dancer, and I think it's because they couldn't think of anyone else who was prepared to take on the challenges that he, he took on. Me, Nancy DeLolio, and where to come. Stop right there. Speaking of professional challenge, mm. how about Michael Palin's travels? Oh, well, I, 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 of all I guess, I have to say, I was so looking forward to Michael Palin because I've watched everything he's ever done. And uh, he, he lived up to expectation, didn't he? He did. And uh, my expectation is that it's extremely hard work traveling around the world with a film crew. And there is absolutely no doubt as you watch him going around the world that it's not nearly as glamorous <laughs> as it sounds. <laughs> I've got two technical questions. What do you do about washing your socks or anything else? I mean, do you take travel wash or do you take or is, does somebody do your laundry? 
I do take travel wash, yes, it is quite important. That along with um, toilet paper, which is not on a roll, but in a flat pack. That's very, very important. Why, what's wrong with a roll? Well, there's no way, where do you put it really, uh, basically? And a roll somehow in your, your, you're crammed in a, well, I don't want to go into but, but a tiny little room with just a slit in the, in the floor and you have to balance, just making sure you, you, all right, you need two hands to get the paper off the roll, only one hand to take it out of the flat pack. <laughs> <laughs> the wonderful Sir Michael Palin, a very handy life hack. I believe next time you go on your travels, you'll know what kind of loo role to take with you. Like a good boy scout, always be prepared. Completely right. But he um, he's very interesting. The cause he chose to discuss with us was stammering. And we had someone from the Stammering Centre because, of course, his father was a stammerer. And that's his role in A Fish Called Wanda um, was based on his his father. He really understands it as a disability. And that was I think that was very moving. Yeah, fascinating listening to him talking about that. Um, our third programme was a very special one for me, Esther. Uh, if you remember, a little bit of dog napping took place near where I live. Um, and I have to say, now this goes to show the power of the media. I got an email that said, um, I believe, having spoken to a friend of mine, that you are doing a podcast and you mentioned my daughter. I think, what on earth is it? She was the one who had her dog stolen in Wimbledon that I managed to grab the guy. And she very kindly sent me a card and a bottle of champagne saying, I cannot tell you how much our family appreciate it. And I thought, wow, that to me was a massive highlight. Um, almost, almost as good, I have to say, as Imelda Staunton talking about a particular animal that she came across. So you say you reach the point where you can stride onto the stage in character, but it's not always that easy, is it? Ah, yes. Ah, yes. So <laughs> it's so good. This it was in the last week, actually, which surprised me because we did it for eight months. It was in the last week at the at the Savoy Theatre, these lovely old theatres. Um, mm. And um, anyway, my character starts at the back of the auditorium. The show begins and of course the baby Louise is singing and from the back of the auditorium you hear, sing out Louise, and that, <laughs> that cut comes up. And so that one. So I, I was at the back of the auditorium and I, I'd got my coat and I'd got dressed in the dressing room, walked around, it'd been about 15 minutes before I'm on. And, um, and then I, when I put my coat on, I thought, oh, I'm gonna have to get wardrobe to fix the seam of this coat because it's not, it's not sitting right. Oh, well, never mind. on we go. So as I, was going down the auditorium saying I'll sing out of it and I'm holding a dog I'm holding a little dog um it was not my dog it was my dog in Chichester but not in London I was holding a little dog and I felt a mouse on the in inside my coat walking up my arm there was and I thought ah right okay we've got a mouse going up my arm up into my so obviously I put the coat on with the mouse in and the mouse had just obviously got a huge fright, just stayed there, just, you know, frozen. And so I'm, as I was walking, the mouse started going, I've got to get out of here, I've got to get out of here. Um, so so, so and then I'm walking and then I have to sing a song and the mouse is still in the coat. Um, so I, I, I just started singing, you know, some people can get a thrill. And the mouse is running up and down my arm going, get me out of here. So I was a lot of movement with the left arm thinking, well, the mouse will fly out. Know, past my wrist and no not at all so so that was it and anyway it, it I don't know when it escaped but it did it's now it's now a family pet <laughs> <laughs> yes 
The fabulous Imelda Staunton. Well, apart from confrontations with rodents, she was, she is the most extraordinary actor, isn't she? She's one of those actresses or actors that that focuses completely on the part they're playing. Those of us who've seen her live, those of us who've seen her on film and on television will never forget those performances. But if you take someone like Katie Price, it is extraordinary how famous she is when you think that initially it was all based on the size of her chest. And um, the one thing that actually surprised me, Esther, was mm. was her frankness about when she used to go for surgery and uh, her mum would get involved. When we first met and I was looking at your autobiography and I saw pictures of you when you were 18 and just started modelling, and there was this gorgeous kid, oh. absolutely lovely face, fabulous figure, but you decided it wasn't fabulous enough. So you decided that you had to do something more to it. And you became an all-round model. In fact, you, you at the age of 20, you had your first boob job, did you? Yes. Well, I wanted it done when I was younger. And my mum was like, there's no way you're having that done. You leave your body alone. And I remember phoning my mum just before I went down. I said, just to let you know, mum, I'm getting my boobs done now. And you can't stop me because I'm just about to go down. She was so unhappy with me. And to this day, if I've had bits and that done, I never tell her because she has phoned the surgeons in, in before and said, if you do this to my daughter, I'm reporting you. Thinking about the boob job, was it because you wanted to attract men? Was it because you thought it would be good business for you? Do you know, it's the absolute opposite. In fact, I lost a lot of jobs doing it. Um, I before I was even a model, I wanted my boobs done. Even at school, I wore pads. I always knew I wanted my boobs done. And I remember when I did page three because they didn't allow fake boobs. They ran a poll in the sun: should I or shouldn't I? And the poll was so high that people said, "Don't do it." But I still went ahead and did it. I had photographers ringing me up saying, "Don't do it, Kate." My agent was saying, "Don't do it, Kate." And I still did it because I wanted to do it. And it seemed to have worked. I sometimes wish that her mum had had a way and restrained her from all that surgery. Mm. Because I think there's another Katie Price, that very strong mum herself, who is determined to protect and look after her son who has um, learning disabilities. So um, you can't help admiring her for that, can you? Mm. A lot of people's opinion changed about Katie Price as a result of the documentary and Harvey's Law that she's trying to force through. Someone I've known for ages, because um, <laughs> when I was a brand new researcher, he was actually in the show that I was working on, is Barry Humphreys. Now, I have a special link with Barry, as you well know, because so many people refer to me. I had a whole email that referred to me as Dame Edna. And... <laughs> It always makes me laugh, particularly as I knew Dame Edna before she was Dame Edna, when she was just Mrs. Edna Everidge. But the story that made me howl with laughter was the wicked trick he played on the late Lord Snowden. The show we were doing was called The Late Show. Now, the composer on our show was Stanley Myers. And we went to dinner at a very smart hotel restaurant in Holland Park. Go on. 
And because it was the evening, and because I was given to habits of intemperance. You used to drink creme de menthe by the pint. Yes, but that was because I'd been in the restaurant earlier and got him to colour some water with green dye. No. And so I would order a pint of creme de menthe and, <laughs> and scull it down to everyone's amazement. <laughs> but Stanley and I were in this restaurant. Yeah. And I had, if I had taken a few too many drinks, I was able, by a wriggle of the hips, to release the waistband of my trousers so that they fell in a sort of unseemly concertina around my ankles. You frightened him witless. Uh, <laughs> waiters were bowing and scraping, and I said, watch this, Stanley, and I got up and walked towards the gents, and as I did so, a disaster occurred. Trousers descended very abruptly, revealing, needless to say, some quite nice underpants, but it was an event that hadn't occurred in that restaurant before. And after I returned to the table, Stan and I were convulsed with laughter. Yes. The head waiter came over and said, excuse me, sir, I, I must ask you to leave the restaurant. Lord Snowden is not amused. Rather like Princess Margaret's grandmother was not amused. <laughs> Do you know, honestly, I, I just have this feeling. I've, I seem to have watched Barry Humphreys all my life, and uh, he, he will just go on and on and on. I think he's hysterical. Really funny guy. And his relationship with Dame Edna is quite interesting <laughs> because sometimes when I've interviewed him, he has insisted on being himself, Barry Humphreys. He doesn't always like Dame Edna. I think she haunts him a bit. Oh, it's like split personality. Now, 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 can I just say something here? Never in my life have I been so excited to interview somebody as Joanna Lumley. And that was the day my internet crashed, just as you were saying, and joining us now is Joanna Lumley. And I had to race to the office and set everything up, by which time the opening line from you was, oh, Aid has joined us now, and all we've done is talk about sex. So let's talk about something else. <laughs> well, obviously, we did talk about Ab Fab and... Uh... A whole new Joanna Lumley appeared on screen. I remember once um, one of the producers, I think, saying that when they cast her for it, the only instruction she got was that Patsy had to be as unlike the real Joanna Lumley as any woman could possibly be. And <laughs> I think that's what she became. Oh, yes. I didn't know who to jump into to begin with. I couldn't think. And then I thought, all I've got to do is to make Jennifer laugh. All I've got to do is to make Jennifer laugh. And with her collusion, we, Patsy became a grotesque. And so she'd had all her insides taken out because they'd all damaged or had rotted away. I think she had quite a lot of her bottom taken away too. So she walked slightly hunched because her middle bits had gone. <laughs> and she hadn't eaten since 1974. And so she choked when she had a crisp, you know? I mean, it was, she was a cartoon character. And as soon as I knew that, because by nature and from being very, very early on, a clown, I'm not an actress, I'm a clown, I'm an entertainer. Then I could see the Patsy and she rose like a phoenix. She, ar she arrived with me almost fully formed. The second, and I'm doing this now for you, the second her hair went up and the second she had a cigarette <laughs> and the second I knew that like Elvis, she didn't laugh like that. She just laughed <laughs> like that. The second I could get that, um, I thought, ooh, ooh, this is somebody I love. <laughs> 
Was she based on anyone you knew? No, no, absolutely not. I mean, because I'd been a model in the 60s and I'd been around and knew pop singers and people like that, you know, I'd met them all. Some of the Beatles and the Stones, because I'd sort of known them. Patsy, exaggeratedly, had had affairs with all of them and was found in the cupboards with them. And um, she believed that. She believed she was a top model. She wasn't, she was hopeless, always stoned. Now, in my day, if there was a joint, somebody would pass it round, you'd all go, ooh, and pass it on. I mean, that was, a, that was about the level of my drug taking. But Patsy just lived off it. And also she injected herself with Botox virtually every morning. And therefore, unbelievably paradise to play. Can I just say that um, I actually interviewed her 32 years ago at uh, the Imperial War Museum. And she said to me, I know I'm in safe hands. So I can honestly say I'm bitterly disappointed and distressed that she had no idea who I was when I joined her on this podcast. <laughs> but not surprised. At least, <laughs> sorry, pardon. <laughs> Changing the subject, Giles Brandreth. Now, yes. he's everywhere, that man. He's on every medium. He writes. He's a journalist. Every time anyone of a certain age and a certain social status dies or gets into trouble, Giles is the expert that's called upon, particularly if they're a member of the royal family. And he even gave us some insights into uh, Prince Philip. Um, in an interview we recorded before Prince Philip died. But having interviewed the Duke of Edinburgh and written about him a great deal, I know that one of his rules and a piece of advice that he gave to his own children, and I imagine would have given to his grandchildren, is don't talk about yourself. That's the general rule in life. Uh, he was interested um, Duke of Edinburgh, surprisingly, in so many different things than, than you'd expect from the caricature view people have of him. But he was interested, for example, in the work of Jung. He was interested in well-being and mental health, Duke of Edinburgh. And he read a lot of Jung. And Carl Jung, this is the, the founder, really, of analytical uh, psychology. And Jung looked at the uh, history of his patients towards the end of his career and came to the conclusion that the happiest of his patients were people who were outward-looking, people who didn't look down and in, but up and out. And the Duke of Edinburgh's philosophy is, look up and out, take an interest in the world around you, be interested in art, in nature, in science, in the world around you. Don't think too much about yourself. Don't brood about yourself. Indeed, Duke of Edinburgh said, don't talk about yourself, nobody's interested. And though he pioneered interviews, he was the first member of the royal family to be interviewed on television, for example, as he said, he was always talking about what he was doing, not about who he was. So I think he would see risks in talking about yourself, um, both for yourself and also because it then begs the next question. Once you begin talking about yourself, where does it end? And I know because he told me um, that he regretted in recent years that the way the royal family had become, they were portrayed as a bit of a soap opera and that saddened him. Giles Brandreth talking about the late Prince Philip, who, of course, he knew very well. Hmm. You said there that uh, Giles pops up everywhere. Can you believe it? He's appeared on Countdown over 300 times. Uh, and I have to say, he did have a particularly good story, uh, one of the best. You know, my favourite story about Countdown, visiting Richard Whiteley, who was, for me, the perfect host, in his dressing room. They'd redone all the dressing. They used to be made at Yorkshire Television up in Leeds. And they'd done his dressing room beautifully, repainted it, refurbished it. And he was showing me around. 
showing off his wonderful blazers in the cupboard and his striped ties. But I noticed above his dressing table, a hole in the wall leading actually to the next dressing room, which was Carol Waterman's dressing room. There was a hole the size, I suppose, of an electric socket, but it was large enough that you could actually peer through from Richard Whiteley's dressing room into Carol Waterman's dressing room. And I said, Richard, have you seen there's that hole in the wall there? He said, oh yes. He said, the moment I got it, I saw that hole. He said, I was about to telephone maintenance to report it. And then I thought, oh, well, what the hell, let her look. <laughs> One of the sex symbols to know Jour, which I discovered because I made a film with him, is Len Goodman. Now, he's rather prim and proper. Well, I say that he looks very neat and tidy when he's a judge on Strictly Come Dancing mm -hmm. or Dancing with the Stars in America though there's always a twinkle in his eye and he always comes out with naughtiness about pickling his walnuts. <laughs> as you do. As you do. But when I was wandering around the Isle of Wight to make a, a film, I think, about um, childhood holidays, all the ladies of a mature age hurled themselves into his paths, strewing him with figurative rose petals. I mean, he was so adored. I know the same thing happened. I once watched a load of women pinching Anton Dubeck's bum. It's funny about these professional dancers. Women can't hold themselves back, you know, physically grasping them. But Esther, Esther, Len had a secret, and that's why the women hurled themselves at him, and he was prepared to share it with us. I'm going to let you into a secret now. Yeah, go on. I am good in bed. <laughs> oh, yes. I don't snore, I don't hog the duvet, I just get over on my own side and fall asleep. <laughs> well, ladies of Britain, you've heard it from the expert. Len Goodman is great in bed. Len's very special. I'll tell you what, David Baddiel, hmm. I have to confess to you, I committed the... Um, interviewer's biggest crime, which is, I knew he'd written a book, but at the time I spoke to him, I hadn't read it. So I feel I should tell you now, I have read it, and it's brilliant. It's called Jews Don't Count. Mm. And um, he's, he's such a clever um, polemicist. Mm. You know, he knows how to put an argument together, and he does so brilliantly. But that's not to say when he came on our podcast that he was going to burden us with, you know, propaganda or argumentation. He, he, he was interested in telling us about his mum. My mum was crazy. And the principal crazy thing about her is that she had an affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman, which led to her becoming obsessed with golf and, and turning all our lives over to golf so that the whole house became filled with golfing memorabilia. Um, and she was constantly telling people about this affair with the golfing memorabilia guy and writing poetry about it and just you know, obsessed with it. And with, you know, in the show, I examined whether or not my dad, who was the only person who didn't seem to know it was going on, was, you know, was aware of it or not, because he was so absurdly uh, like a man not interested in the life of the emotions. It seemed that he sort of passed him by. And anyway, so all of this involved me talking, yeah, in some depth about my mother's affairs, um, reading out her erotic poetry and uh, all the rest of it. And 
people were cringing, but they were laughing and they also understood it as a celebration. How did you know about her erotic poetry? Well, that was probably the moment that I thought I'm doing this show because I've been thinking about it for a while and my brothers have been like, should you be doing this or whatever? And I've been saying it comes from a place of love, uh, which it does. Uh, but then we were just going through and quite a lot of the show is about how you go through, you know, just to sort it out people's stuff uh, after they die and we were at my mum and dad's house going through all this golfing stuff and you know you're aware as you're going through the golfing stuff this only exists because she had this affair which she it, it became the center point of her life this affair um, and then suddenly I find this book which is a kind of diary of her affair which most of which is erotic poetry okay so this is what what is perhaps unusual about me is I read that and my first thought was, uh, okay, okay, this is what, okay, so I'll tell you a bit about it. So earlier in that show, I set up the fact that my mother misuses inverted commas, which she does all the time. So she uses inverted commas with things that shouldn't have inverted commas on them. So for yeah. example, I show an email where she says, I hope you're having a Thanksgiving dinner. By the way, we never have Thanksgiving dinner, but she sent me an email once saying, I hope you're having Thanksgiving dinner with all the trimmings and put trimmings in inverted commas. I'm like, <laughs> Okay, why are they in inverted commas? Because like, <laughs> you just mean trimmings. Right? You don't mean not trimmings, you mean... So anyway, so, and then later on when I found the erotic poetry, all body parts are in inverted commas. Right? <laughs> right? Um, and, and including some ex very extreme sexual activities are in inverted commas, are in kind of mummish inverted commas. And that was, that was my first thought, was that's hilarious, that she's carried the inverted commas thing on into her erotic poetry. <laughs> I find it extraordinary that you can write a show about your family life and intimate detail and secrets about your mum and dad and their relationship. And I think, would I ever, ever have the, the goal uh, to, do, to do that? I'm not sure I could. It says everything about David, that the way he can write, the way he can think is so, so clever. Um, yeah, I, th I thought it was a fascinating interview. Really, really interesting guy. But it is a nightmare to think that one's children might do anecdotes about one. <laughs> I think you should be worried more than anyone. Thanks. That's more or less where I was heading. <laughs> Michael Grade's a hero of mine. He um, obviously comes from a huge showbiz family, you know, the, the Grades, the Lou and the Leslie and the Bernard Delfont, extraordinary mm. titans of show business and television. He was our boss at the B, wasn't he? He certainly was, and really great boss. I mean, he could tell the difference between a good idea and a bad one, unlike many of the bosses who succeeded him, who even if they could tell the difference would invariably commission the bad one and ignore the good one. But but Lord Grade, he was um, a very, very, very gifted television program maker or program commissioner. And um, I think he had fun doing it. And I think that was his secret. That and his daughter. We were only at the daytime on BBC One and my job was to fill with no money. They gave me no money to do it with, but they said fill the daytime schedule. So I said to a colleague, Roger Lawton, I said, we need, we need a soap opera that, you know, where there are thousands of episodes that we can run every day or fill half an hour or an hour. I said, go to America, go to Australia, New Zealand, anywhere with our sensibilities and see if you can find me a show. So he came back, he said, there's nothing in America. I said, I'm not surprised. He said, but there are two shows in Australia that are worth looking at. I'll sit down, let's watch it. We watched the tapes. 
He said, which one do you think? I said, I think Neighbours. Which one do you think? He said, I think Neighbours too. I said, right, let's buy it. So we bought Neighbours uh, and I scheduled it wrongly. I had it on at 9.30 and 1.30. And my daughter was at school at the time told me she'd been in trouble at school. I said, what, what happened? She said, oh, she said, we were caught watching television at half past one in the lunch break. We found a TV in the school. We were all crowded around. I said, what were you watching? <laughs> Whatever the scheduler. She said, oh, a thing called Neighbours. Right, I said, we've got it in the wrong place. I rushed back to the office the next day. So we've got to move Neighbours. Got to move from 1.30 to when the kids have got home, five o'clock. So we moved it and the rest is history. We had no idea. We had no idea that it was going to be the hit that it was. It was really down to my daughter getting into trouble at school. Never mind about audience research and a whole department doing all the work. That'll do me. The kids want to watch it. <laughs> and as he says, you know, a lot of his shows that he commissioned are still going today. And, uh, you know, kind of point out Doctor Who is still going today and he cancelled that. So I just want to make a point. on that. Um, but do you know what was really moving um, mm. with the chat with Michael um, was the fact that he mentioned all our celebrities have taken time out to mention a particular charity that they're interested in mm. and that they're involved in, some of them are patrons of. And he talked about sepsis. And I, as we all do, we hear the word mentioned on the news and people are suffering with sepsis. I wasn't quite 100% sure what it entailed and the gentleman called John who phoned in to talk about his experience I thought was truly moving really moving yes and sometimes the um, the, the charities that they are really interested in are, are unexpected for example I didn't know that Anton Dubeck was going to pick the silver line but I'm really glad he did. He did because he said that ballroom dancing is such an important social activity for older people and that during COVID it was impossible for people to get together. And so isolated or lonely older people were more isolated than ever. As it happened, one of the early callers to the Silver Line helpline was also a ballroom dancer. And so it was great fun to bring them together. And John Bettany, my, my friend who, who rang the Silver Line, was able to tell Anton the difference it made so that he was able to go back to dance, which was so important to him. But they were all fascinating, weren't they? Yeah. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, you, know, you, you want to give something back. And, and I think any of the celebrities trying to sort of raise the profile is important. The other thing is, you know, people are sometimes quite scornful about so-called celebrities who lending their name to charity and wondering what their motives are. Mm. Well, I think what we proved in our interviews is that their motives are, they are really inspired by and moved by the causes they described, mm. you know, Someone obviously like Michael Palin had a personal reason to be fascinated by stammering, but they all had a real genuine link and wanted the public to become more aware. Mm -hmm. For me, one of the great pleasures and privileges of our podcast series was having the chance to listen to Judy Dench. Oh. Dame Judy Dench. <laughs> she must have one of the most attractive voices in the English language. But it's, she's like a magnet. She draws you in. Mm. She, you, you totally focus on her. To have the experience of our own Shakespearean sonnet 
recited by Judy. Wow. And a few of the riddles, of course, that my grandmother taught me. One of the things you've been doing recently, Judy, is you've been doing a competition with your grandson. He's tried to catch you out on TikTok with Victorian riddles. Now, I was taught these riddles by my grandmother. I wonder if I can test you. My grandmother tells me that the owl owled because the woodpecker woodpecker. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. You tell me that in The Owl and the Pussycat, yeah. who's the chap in it? The Owl and the Pussycat went to see him. They took some money and played him. The Owl looked up to the stars and said, and sang to a small guitar, Oh, lovely pussy, oh, pussy, my love, what a beautiful pussy you are. But Pussy said to the Owl, Oh, elegant fowl, charmingly sweet you sing, Oh, let us be married. Too long we have married, but what shall we do for a ring? It's a very modern relationship. It certainly is. They sailed away for a year and a day. To the land where the bong tree grows. And there in the wood, a... Stood. Piggywig. Stood, with a ring at the end of his nose. Dear pig. Dear pig. Are you willing? To sell for one shilling your ring? Said the piggy. I will. For an enormous price, I expect. So they sailed away and were married next day by... The turkey who lived on the hill. They dined on... Mince and slices of quince, which they ate with a runcible spoon, and hand in hand on the edge of the sand, they danced by the light of the moon. Heaven, heaven. I just have one more for you. Why couldn't the viper viper nose? Um, why couldn't the viper viper nose? Because Something addit, something, you know, what? Yes, very close. Oh, the adder addit. The adder adder handkerchief. It's it's sensational. When you open your Christmas cracker company, you two. (laughs) We should. The wonderful Dame Judi Dench. It's not often you get sandwiched between two dames, Esther. That's all I'll say. (laughs) (laughs) Dame sandwich. It sounds disgusting. (laughs) One of the things we did was ask all our guests what they would take with them to the afterlife, as this is that's afterlife. Which one do you remember? Oh, um, <laughs> I have to say, we were thinking, will you be taking a particular object or whatever? But one of my favourite responses was when asked the question uh, was Barry Humphreys. And he just very went, a return ticket. <laughs> that's what I call planning ahead. Yeah, well, in case you don't like it, though. Yeah, but, you know, my daughter believes in reincarnation, so heaven knows what Barry Humphreys would come back as. Um, The one I remember is Katie Price, who said her silicone implants. (laughs) (laughs) What would you take, Aid? Um, I've I've been thinking about this for each podcast, and, and I think this is such a simple answer. It would either have to be an ongoing supply of red wine or a coffee machine. Nothing to remind you of the life here. Nothing to. Oh, remind sorry, sorry. You. Yes, photograph of Esther Ranson, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right. Well, I have decided to follow Katie Price's example and take my dental work. Imagine oh. if, in years to come, they they they're digging up and they find your teeth and her silicone implants. They'll be thinking, what sort of creature was this? Indeed. Well, that was our series. That was the podcast in series one, and. 
I think we were really lucky, not only to have the stars talking to us mm. so frankly and so intimately, but all those wonderful people that we were able to introduce also to talk about the various charities and good causes. So thanks to everybody that took part. Thanks to everybody that enjoyed them so much and sent us kind messages. Yeah, and all those people that sent emails and life hacks. And, you know, we've got a very solid following and uh, all those people that gave us five star ratings as well. It's been fun, Adi. Uh, do you know, Esther, it's, it's like everything. I mean, you know, my goodness me, that's life finished in 1994. And mm -hmm. here we are all these years later talking about that's afterlife because it is still held in such fond memory. It has been terrific fun, really, really enjoyable. It has. And I think at this point, Ada, you and I ought to pay tribute to the hardworking pair who have made this possible. And that's Liz Mills and Ross. Correct. Because they were have both been so brilliant in I'm making sure do you know esther i'm sure i'd stop there because i'm sure there's a little link that says you know this is a captive mind production okay okay don't overdo it but thanks liz thanks ross thanks listeners join us again soon bye-bye bye that's afterlife is a captive minds production and is series produced by ross haley the creator and executive producer is liz mills Thank you.